This morning's passage comes from Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 29. It can be found on page 892 in the Black Chair Bible in front of you. Hear the word of the Lord from Mark 6. He left there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. Where did this man get these things, they said? What is this wisdom that has been given to him? And how are these miracles performed by his hands? Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simeon? And aren't his sisters here with us? So they were offended by him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his household. He was not able to do a miracle there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. He was amazed at their unbelief. He was going around the villages teaching. He summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over unclean spirits. He instructed them to take nothing for the road except a staff, no bread, no traveling bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on an extra shirt. He said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that place. If any place does not welcome you or listen to you, when you leave there, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons, anointed many sick people with oil, and healed them. King Herod heard about it because Jesus' name had become well known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he's Elijah. Still others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets from long ago. When Herod heard it, he said, John, the one I beheaded, has been raised. For Herod himself had given orders to arrest John and to chain him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. John had been telling Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias held a grudge against him and wanted to kill him. But she could not, because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing he was a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard him, he would be very perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. An opportune time came on his birthday when Herod gave a banquet for his nobles, military leaders, and the leading men of Galilee. When Herodias' own daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you want and I'll give it to you. He promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask me, I will give it to you, up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What should I ask for? John the Baptist head, she said. At once the girl hurried to the king and said, I want you to give me John the Baptist's head on a platter immediately. Although the king was deeply distressed, because of his oaths and the guests, he did not want to refuse her. The king immediately went, sent for an executioner and commanded him to bring John's head. 
So he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl. Then the girl gave it to her mother. When John's disciples heard about it, they came and removed his corpse and placed it in a tomb. This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. My name is Ryan Dennis, and I'm one of the elders here at Faith Church. I'm excited to look at God's Word with you this morning. My papers, I must have a lot of notes just to warn you, they're about to fall off this uh, mini pulpit. But but one of the things uh, that intrigues me uh, is to hear the stories of people who are extremely gifted, who are talented, successful, the people who are kind of the best in their craft or just amazing innovators, and to hear their stories uh, and to hear of times when they were totally rejected. <laughs> Uh, So people like Walt Disney, who was fired for his job uh, that he had before starting his own company because the reasons he was given, and I quote, he lacked imagination and had no good ideas. Insane, right? Uh, People like Stephen King, whose first novel was rejected by over 30 different publishers. Crazy to to imagine that. People like Michael Jordan, the greatest basketball player of all time, and I don't want to hear any LeBron talk, MJ is the greatest, but Mike, thank you for the applause, Michael Jordan was rejected when he tried out for his varsity basketball team as a sophomore and was put on the JV team, Michael Jordan. Bands like the Beatles, who auditioned for a record deal and were turned away, uh, where the executive producer said that they have no future in show business. A more recent example, one final one, uh, someone like Ed Sheeran, who who auditioned for multiple record labels and each time was turned down for the reason being that he wasn't good marketing material. He just didn't have, he didn't look good enough. He wasn't cool enough. There's no way his music was going to be successful. And of course, all these people were totally wrong, right? (laughs) But as tragic as it might seem for the world to have missed out on talented people like this, uh, you, you might think it's not that tragic. You might not like the Beatles. You might not like any of but you know, as tragic as it may seem for the world to miss out on people who are extremely gifted, extremely talented, well, all that they've offered and brought to the world, of course, it's infinitely more tragic to miss out on Jesus, right? And who Jesus is and miss out on his kingdom. There isn't a greater tragedy in the world. And as we look at our passage this morning, we're going to look at three sobering examples of men and women rejecting the most valuable person to ever walk on the planet and reject the most valuable thing in the world, namely Jesus and his kingdom. And here's the reality. For, for a variety of reasons and in a variety of ways and to a variety of degrees, Jesus and his kingdom have always been rejected by some. He's always been rejected, and it isn't by accident, really. The very nature of the gospel and preaching of the gospel demands a response, and there aren't many options, right? We've already seen that the response that Jesus calls for is to repent and believe. So that really leaves you with two options. You can either do what Jesus says, you can repent and believe, or you can choose not to. You can repent or you can reject. There's belief or there's unbelief. There's no neutral response to Jesus whatsoever. Now, as we look at this text, I admit I'm not going to be able to, due to the length of it, 
probably look at every detail or answer every last question you might have. Uh, each of these kind of three sections we'll look at could probably, probably be a sermon on their own. But when you look at them together, you're left with this very kind of unsettling and powerful message, which is that as incredible and amazing as the kingdom of God is, and that as incredible as Christ is, as we've looked at these last few weeks in Mark, several weeks, he will be rejected. And Christ's kingdom will be resisted. And there will be those, some, many even, that want nothing to do with it for a variety of reasons, as we'll see. So as we walk through this passage this morning, uh, first we'll kind of look at each of these kind of different scenes. So first we'll look at Jesus and his kingdom being rejected by the people of Nazareth. Uh, Then we'll look at his rejection in the towns and villages, and then the rejection of Herod himself. And one thing I want to note from the start, that it's important to realize that the rejection of the disciples and the rejection of John before Herod is ultimately a rejection of Jesus himself in the end. Jesus told his disciples in Luke 10, 16, that the one who hears you, hears me. The one who rejects you, rejects me. So the disciples, they're not preaching their own message, not preaching their own kingdom. They're preaching uh, the kingdom that Christ has taught them. They're they're preaching Jesus as he has instructed them to do. John 2 was a forerunner of the kingdom of God, proclaiming and paving the way for the Messiah. So any rejection is ultimately a rejection of Jesus and his kingdom, which couldn't be more serious, right? All right, so first, let's look at the rejection of Jesus and Nazareth. Now, just to remind you what's been going on so far in Mark. Uh, so at the end of chapter 4, we have that incredible scene where Jesus is out on the boat with his disciples. The storm is raging. The waves are crashing. The boat's filling up. The disciples think they're going to die. And Jesus wakes up and just says the words, silence, be still. And, and there's that instant calm. There's instant peace. You see Jesus' great power over the natural world. Then in chapter 5, we see his power over the evil spirits and over, uh, over sickness also. So he casts out a legion of demons out of a man by just saying it. We see him heal the woman who was sick for years and years, which no physician could heal, and he healed her instantly. We saw him raise a little girl from the dead. All these things showing the greatness of Christ's power. And surely rumors like these have reached back to Nazareth. Uh, ones like these, other miracles he's been doing this time, surely they've heard rumors and reports of what Jesus has been doing. And, and also they've heard rumors of his teaching and who he's proclaiming to be and what he's saying. So back in Mark 1, he was proclaiming the good news of God. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So surely things like this have reached back. They've heard. They have some idea of what's going on. And then we come to chapter 6, verse 1. He left there, Jesus, and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. So Jesus returns to the place uh, where he grew up and where he spent most of his life with his disciples now joining him, coming back. So this is where his family was from. This is where most of his relatives would have been uh, living. It was a town of only around 500 people. Uh, So surely most of the people would either uh, remember him in some way or know some of his family members at some point come in contact with him. And you can see that familiarity right away in verse 3, where they say, isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and aren't his sisters here with us? So they recognize him. Oh yeah, he's the carpenter. He's the guy we used to see working around here with his hands. 
Uh, and given the geographical area of where he was, he likely worked with both wood and stone. It would have been customary in that day for carpenters to build uh, plows and yokes to make different furniture and stools and beams for buildings and doorways and all kinds of things like that, a great variety. So they would have remembered him. He's the guy uh, who used to build stuff around here. To make, he made our table or, you know, whatever it might have been. And we know his mom and his sisters and his brothers. So you would think these people who have familiarity with him, some remembrance of him, uh, they should know some degree of his credibility and his trustworthiness. You would think they should respond positively, right? But that's what makes their response all the more surprising. So in verse 2, it says that Jesus began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. Where did this man get these things, they said? What is this wisdom that has been given him, and how are these miracles performed by his hands? So as is typically the case, people are blown away when they hear Jesus talk. People are astonished. That's the common uh, thing you see again and again. They're taken back. They recognize that there's some kind of power here, some kind of authority about the way that he teaches that is not like the religious leaders we're used to. That's not like the scribes that normally talk about us, talk about God's word to us. There's a wisdom that really doesn't match up with him being a carpenter, right? So they recognize there's some uniqueness about him. There's a wisdom, there's a power, and they ask a good question. Where did this man get these things? If he's a carpenter, you know, where did he get these things? But they answer it wrongly. They conclude, hey, he's just one of us. We already know who he is. We know where he's from. He's no one special. He's the carpenter. He's from here. His relatives are here. Who does he think he is? Does he think he's better than us? And so verse 3 says, they were offended by him. And sadly, the proverb Jesus quotes proves true once more. A, pro- a prophet is not without honor, except in his own hometown, among his relatives, and in his own household. So instead of rejoicing at the return of Christ and being excited, like, oh man, he came from our place. He came from Nazareth among us and, and kind of celebrating and rejoicing that Christ had come from their town. Instead, they're offended and reject him. And they made this fatal mistake that that continues today, and I'll admit a different but similar manner. They were familiar enough with Jesus, uh, so they thought they had him figured out. They saw something, they knew something about him, and assumed that what they saw and what they knew was all that there was. But there's nothing more dangerous in the world to assume that you get Jesus when you don't. There's nothing more dangerous than to assume that you know Christ when you're actually clueless. A familiarity with Jesus without a true faith in Jesus. You can know a lot about him and not know him truly and personally whatsoever. And how many today are familiar with kind of the basic message of the New Testament, that the gospel that Christ Jesus came to save sinners and through his death and resurrection, if you believe, you can have eternal life. So I believe, so therefore I'm forgiven and I have eternal life and I'm good to go. And yet that's the extent of knowledge of him. That's the extent of relationship with him. Familiarity and faith are not the same thing. And for his hometown, he was so just common and ordinary in their eyes that he ended up being insignificant in their eyes. 
And he too today can become so familiar and just common and, and talked about so flippantly that he is insignificant in our eyes today as well. And Christians, for us too, this should be a, a great warning to us uh, not to be so familiar with Jesus that we cease to be in all of him. A familiarity without a love and a worship and a treasuring and an adoring Christ is an awful thing. And there's this constant temptation for us to cease to be amazed by God in his word. To come to church and think, oh yeah, I've heard that before, yep. To come to his word and read it, yep, I've read that before. To sing songs of praise, and it's just another familiar song that we have that we just goes off our lips but means very little to us. But don't let a familiarity with Jesus keep you from seeing his majesty and his glory continuously, but, but cry out every time we come to his word, every time we come to worship, God, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Lord, show me your glory. Open my eyes. Don't let me be dulled by my familiarity to these truths. Let's look now at verse five. We, we see the result of their response. He, Jesus, was not able to do a miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. So sadly, we'll never know what wonders might have been done in Nazareth. We'll never know what glories they might have seen, what miracles Christ might have done to just demonstrate his power and his greatness. Because of their hardness of heart and rejection, he was not able to do much in their midst. Now, don't misunderstand Mark's words there, though, when he says he was not able so Jesus' power and his ability to work miracles is not like uh, the power of Santa Claus in the movie Elf. I'm, I'm hoping many of you have seen this. Great movie. Uh, my family watches it almost every year, the day after Thanksgiving, which is the appropriate time to start watching Christmas movies and listen to Christmas music. Thank you for Yeah, agree. It's from God's word. It's authoritative. No, I'm just kidding. Not, not just kidding. Personal preference. But in the movie Elf, what is it that makes Santa's sleigh fly? It's Christmas spirit, or it's supposed to be. But there's this great problem, right? Because not enough people are believing these days. And so his, his sleigh won't fly on its own. So they have to have these rockets and whatnot. And the, and the solution has to be that we need, that people have to believe to make it so the sleigh can fly. And that's not the type of limitation that Mark is getting at for Christ. It's not that Jesus was incapable because he is dependent and kind of needs that boost from people's faith to kind of, to kind of lift him up and empower him. No, it was not because he couldn't do it, but that he wouldn't do it in response to unbelief and hardness of heart. That would go against the means by which he chose to work miracles. So in Matthew's account, it's a little even more clear. Uh, of the same story in uh, chapter 13, verse 58. It says he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. So he didn't do it. He chose not to. He wasn't able in the sense that he wasn't going to do it in response to their hardness of heart and their unbelief. And that really brings us to the heart of the matter in this entire account in Nazareth, and that's unbelief. And their unbelief was so great that verse 6 says that Jesus was amazed at their unbelief. And that's a heartbreaking reason to amaze the Son of God, right? Amazed at unbelief. 
But it's this unbelief that's the underlying reason, ultimately, for their rejection of Christ. And here's the the terrifying thing about unbelief. Unbelief can always find a reason to reject Christ. Unbelief can always find a reason to reject Jesus. Unbelief is as creative as it is deceptive. And here's what I mean. In, In this passage, it expressed itself in rejection of Jesus due to familiarity, right? He's so familiar. He's too common. How could he possibly be the Son of God? How could he possibly be the Messiah? But it just as well could have expressed itself in unbelief because he seemed too strange or too out there, too foreign. He's too unfamiliar, right? And that's what happens in Acts 17 when Paul is preaching Jesus in Athens. They describe him as a babbler, a preacher of foreign divinities, and they tell him, you bring some strange things to our ears. It's strangeness. That's how it's expressed there. It's too strange. So unbelief, it could be because it's too familiar, too too ordinary, it can't possibly be real, or it seems too weird. It's too out there. It's too different. And that's 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 the point here is that if our hearts don't want to believe, our minds can always find a reason not to. We can reject the Bible because it seems too earthly and it's written by man. It doesn't seem like it would be from God. And we can reject the Bible because it's supernatural and contains too many miracles and it's beyond us and we can't understand it. We can reject Jesus because we see no need for forgiveness of sins. We're self-righteous or we think we're good enough. Or we can reject Jesus because we think our sins are too great and it's too much and he can't possibly welcome us or forgive us. The reasons might vary greatly, but in the end, we can either believe what God has spoken or we can choose to not believe what he has said. And unbelief is yet another temptation that the Christian too must always be on guard against. Unbelief is the source of much of our unfruitfulness and unhappiness in life. You know, what what comforts we neglect, what power we give up simply because we don't take what God has spoken in his word, and just believe it. Just receive it as from God and accept it and believe it and live like it's true. And the prayer of the disciples that, Lord, increase our faith should be a prayer that's frequently on our lips. And even as we sang this morning over and over and over again, Jesus is better. Make my heart believe. Because we're constantly tempted to forget that Jesus is better, to not believe that Jesus is better than all these other things. And so we need to pray again and again, Lord, help me believe. I believe, help my unbelief, increase my faith. I wish I could linger along there, but we have to go on to the next section here, where we'll look at Jesus and his kingdom as it's rejected in the towns and the villages. So immediately following his own rejection, uh, Jesus sends out the twelve. And you'll remember back in uh, Mark 3, I think Ryan Troglin, Pastor Troglin spoke uh, on this, and we saw that Jesus appointed the 12 to be with him. It says in uh, chapter 3, verse 14, to be with him, to send them out to preach, and to have authority to drive out demons. And so far, we've seen the first half of that, right? They have been with Jesus. They have been learning from him. They have, he has been teaching them. They have been watching him. They have been growing in their understanding of, of who he is. Uh, seeing this man that even the wind and the waves obey, they are being just uh, taught both by his words and by his example and by fellowship with him. And then now we see the second part. He sends them out. 
So in verse 7, it says, uh, it tells us he gave them authority over unclean spirits. And then verse 12, they went out and preached that people should repent. And if we were to look at Luke 8, which is kind of a, Luke 9, I'm sorry, it's a parallel passage that tells of these same events. It adds a little bit more. And it says, he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. So the 12 are sent out to basically carry on the same work that Jesus has been doing. They're preaching the kingdom of God, they're casting out demons, and they're healing those who are sick. And it's important to note that they don't only face rejection, right? This is the the part of the passage this morning that there is some bright spot. Uh, Based on the uh, verse 13, they were able to drive out demons. They were able to heal the sick. And the passage we'll look at next week in verse 30, when they return, they tell Jesus all that they did and what they were teaching. So they do have some success. So that's important to note. But before they go, Jesus gives them this warning. He says, if any place does not welcome you or listen to you, when you leave there, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. In other words, you're going to experience rejection. People are not all going to welcome you and listen to what you have to say. Don't expect that. Expect rejection. And there's wisdom in the Lord's timing here. He, he's not sending them out at the height of his own popularity, but he was just rejected in his hometown. And he's telling them, expect rejection. Expect there to be people who don't listen and don't want to hear what you have to say. And that's part of the reason also when he sends them out, he sends them out with so little. Look at verse eight and nine, uh, where it says he sent them out. He told them to take no bread, no traveling bag, and no money in their belts, and not even put on an extra shirt. And this was partially so that they would trust in the Lord and rely on him to provide for them along the way. But it was also to make very clear who listened and received them and who didn't. So so it was to make very plain when their presence and their preaching were welcome and when they were totally rejected, right? Because those who rejected them would not only have to just not listen, couldn't kind of show partial interest, yeah, yeah. But no, they would send them away empty-handed. They would not show hospitality. They would not meet their basic needs. And they would be a very clear, obvious rejection. You either welcomed them, and that was clear, or you reject them, and that was clear too. Now, what does the shaking off the dust from your feet as a testimony mean? That's, I don't think any of you have ever done that before. That would be strange in our culture. It's a very foreign idea. But in the first century, Jews would shake off the dust from their feet when they, refer, when they returned to the Holy Land from Gentile regions. And when they did this gesture, they were saying, uh, in essence, this place is not part of God's kingdom. This place, these people are not God's people. So we are, we've come into the Holy Land. I'm shaking off this unholy dirt that doesn't belong to God. These people are cut off. It's a pagan place, and they are separated and cut off from the Lord unless they repent. But it's interesting here that Jesus takes this practice and then turns it back on them. Because notice, he's telling them that these Jewish towns, these Jewish towns that are part of God's people, they are part of Israel, who reject the message that you're bringing are not God's people, but have made themselves Gentiles in terms of the kingdom of God, in relation to the kingdom of God. It too, it's a visible gesture for anyone to see that they are cut off from God unless they repent, unless they receive the kingdom. And this would be shocking, 
when done in the towns of Israel. Gentiles, sure, yeah, they're pagan, they're cut off, but, but Jewish towns? And this is also another reason why Jesus sent them out in pairs, uh, is this testimony. So yes, I'm, I'm sure it was for mutual encouragement and to work together and to, to help each other, but it was also because the Old Testament law required two witnesses to establish a legal case against someone. So, so the two apostles who, who came bringing the message of the kingdom, as they are rejected and they are bearing witness against this town, they are testifying that based on their response, they are no different than unrepentant Gentiles as far as the kingdom of God is concerned. And what did they do that was so terrible to, to receive this judgment? They refused to listen to the gospel. As simple as that is, and as common as it is today, it remains the same. So, so whether it occurs on the mission field in China or whether it occurs with your neighbor next door, there's often the same refusal to listen. And I remember going uh, to a friend's house as a teenager, uh, and I remember going to his dad's house and walking in and, and seeing this big sign on the door. It was a big, no soliciting sign. Uh, and part, well, I don't remember the exact, the exact language, but I do remember it was rather rude, whatever it said. <laughs> and that one of the things it said was, is that we already have our religion. We already have our religion. And I don't fully know this man's spiritual condition. I, I certainly don't know today where he's at. Uh, but as far as I remember, he showed no signs of spiritual life whatsoever. He never went to church. He never read the Bible. He never talked about Jesus. Uh, there was no sign uh, that he had any spiritual life whatsoever. He honestly seemed like a pretty unhappy guy that I was kind of scared of. But he had his religion. He had his beliefs, and he didn't want to hear what anyone else had to say uh, and, and just keep it to yourself. I'm not listening no matter what. And on the one hand, I understand that, you know, I don't want Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses or whatever constantly coming to my door and knocking too. That happened at my old house. And it always happened at the worst time. It was like, you just get the baby to sleep and the doorbell rings five times. And you're like, ah, but I get that. But at the same time, I think it does symbolize an attitude that he had and many others have where they think that, you know, I already have the answers. I don't, I don't need to listen to what you have to say. Why listen and consider what the Bible says about Jesus? I already have my own beliefs. I have my own ideas. I have my own notions. And I, and I couldn't possibly be wrong. Or if I was, it's not that big of a deal. Who, who are you to tell me what to think? But there couldn't be a more foolish mistake. These towns were cut off from God and his people, and it's the same fate to this day for all who refuse to listen to the gospel of Christ, to refuse to listen to the words of Christ. So listen to the gospel. Ponder who Jesus is. Consider the meaning of his death on the cross. Listen to his claims and his commands, namely to repent and believe. It couldn't be more serious. So listen to his words. But let's look now at the last example here where we see the kingdom of God, Jesus and his kingdom, rejected by Herod. And this, of course, is uh, the most drastic of all the rejection we see in our passage this morning, and the persecution is the most severe. And you'll probably notice when we read through it that most of this section uh, actually takes place in the past. So you have verses 14 and 16 occur in the present where Herod hears about Jesus and what he's been doing. He hears probably about the apostles going out and talking. 
And, and Jesus' name had become well-known at that point. There's these different theories about who he is. Some say he's John the Baptist, raised from the dead. Uh, other people say he's like he's Elijah. Others say, no, no, he's just, he's a great prophet, like one from long ago who's, who's here now. And Herod, likely due to a, a conscience that's plaguing him, uh, concludes in fear, you know, John, the one who I beheaded, has been raised. And then Mark kind of gives the backstory of how that happened in verses 17 through 29. But remember John's uh, task. We read about it at the beginning of our service this morning, some words on John the Baptist. Uh, but in Mark 1.4, it says, John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism for the forgiveness of sins. In Matthew 3.2, John's telling the crowds, repent because the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven has come near. So John is coming, getting the people ready for the Messiah's coming. And he's telling them, you know, turn from your wrongdoings, turn from your, your sin, turn from the ways you've been rejecting and despising the Lord. Seek forgiveness. He will forgive you. Repent and be forgiven. Turn to him. The kingdom is here. And now John got in trouble because he was not a respecter of persons. Because he told this same message to everyone, even those in power. And he wasn't vague in his call to repentance either. A lot of times you can get away with a vagueness and, and generalities and speak in just vague terms. People might put up with you for a little while, but that was not John's approach. He called Herod out directly. As verse 18 says, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. He, he doesn't even refer to her as Herod's wife. It, it, it doesn't matter that she divorced her husband and you divorced your wife and that you two are now married. She's still your brother Philip's wife. Call her what you want. It's not right. Repent of this evil. But it turns out people don't like to be told that sort of thing, as you can imagine, and it's still today. We're told in verse 19 uh, that Herodias in particular held a grudge against him and wanted to kill him. And to say she had a grudge doesn't seem like a strong enough word uh, with how we use that term today. She, she hated him. She wanted him dead for what he was saying. And for someone who's decidedly set in, in their kind of ways of sin and their rebellion in the Lord, and they've kind of staked their claim, and I'm not changing no matter what, it, when you question that, you're instantly an enemy. W when you object, you need to be silenced, right? So Herod gives the order. He has John chained in prison, uh, but he wouldn't let her kill him. Why not? Verse 20, because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing he was a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard him, he would be very perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. So Herod actually listens to John and even enjoys it. So step one, that's good. He's listening, unlike the towns. He knows that John's a righteous and holy man and has some fear of him. That's good too, right? But what does Herod never do? He never repents, right? He never repents. He kind of stays in this limbo period where he's hearing about the kingdom of God. He's hearing God's word. He's intrigued by it. He's knowing there's something kind of unique there. there. There's something that's unique about John, and he has a respect for him, and he hears him uh, gladly, but he's kind of in this limbo period. He doesn't want to actually obey John. He doesn't want to actually repent and give up his sin. 
And in the end, he doesn't repent for one simple reason. He has a favorite sin that is just too precious for him to part with. Herodias is just too precious for him to give up and enter the kingdom of God. In commenting on this passage, J.C. Ryle, who was a 19th century pastor, wrote a commentary on all the Gospels, which in, in my opinion are some of the best things ever written on the Gospels, so I highly recommend it. But he said this, commenting on this passage. He said, let us take warning from Herod's case. Let us keep nothing back, cleave to no favorite vice, spare nothing that stands between us and salvation. Let us often look within and make sure that there is no darling lust or pet transgression, which Herodias-like is murdering our souls. It's heavy. But is there sin in your life that is too precious to part with? A darling lust or a pet transgression, to use Ryle's language, which Herodias-like is murdering your soul. Learn from Herod's example, it's not worth it. <laughs> Nothing is worth keep staying out of the kingdom of God for. Nothing is worth giving up not giving up so that you might know Jesus. To quote another old writer, he says, sin is not so sweet in the committing as it is heavy and bitter in the reckoning. It's just never worth it. Let no sin keep you from the kingdom of God. Let no sin keep you from knowing the love of God in your soul. And as we see in Herod's case, that time eventually runs out. You can't stay in limbo period forever. In fact, putting off repentance is, is just a form of rejecting in the moment in and of itself. But Herod still had time to change his mind. He still had time to repent and enter the kingdom of God and be forgiven. But that time runs out and he had to make a choice. And for Herod, that time came on his birthday when he throws a big party for himself. It says he gave a banquet for his nobles and these others. But if you throw a party on your birthday... It was for himself, right? But he gave this party, where he, a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And during the party, Herodias' daughter does some kind of dance that pleases everyone. Uh, and then that's when Herod makes his oath, right? He says, you know, I'll give you whatever you want, up to, up to half my kingdom, which was an expression of the day. It wasn't that he would literally give her half the kingdom. You might be thinking, she took the guy's head instead of half the kingdom. No, it was an expression of the day that was just saying, I'll give you whatever you want. At Herod and his role, it wasn't even in his authority to give up the kingdom. But he's saying, you know, what? whatever you want, I will give to you. And after consulting with her wicked mother, she comes back and asks for the head of John on a platter. And now Herod has a choice to make. He can no longer stay in this limbo period where he's hearing John gladly, but then still holding tight to his favorite sin. He has to make a choice. Verse 26 says he was deeply distressed. Other translations say exceedingly sorry. He's sorry in this moment. He feels the weight of it. He's, he's unhappy about it. But he's not so sorry. He's not sorry enough to say no to a little girl. He's not sorry enough to look soft and weak in front of his buddies and the leaders of 
of this, this era. He, he wasn't sorry enough to still say goodbye to Herodias. He wasn't sorry enough to repent of his sin and enter the kingdom of God. And he wasn't sorry enough to spare John's life. So he gives the order. The executioner is sent for. He goes, cuts off John's head. And verse 28 says, he literally brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. Then the girl gave it to her mother. Can you, can you imagine that scene and actually being there? You're at this party, there's all these people, and there's a head of John the Baptist going around the room. You know, if, if the shaking off the dust from the apostles' feet was meant to be this statement, this picture of judgment on the towns and villages, what does the bloody head of John, a righteous and holy man being passed around on a platter at this party, what kind of judgment does that pronounce? on this man and these guests. This man who knew John was holy and righteous. What an indictment that will stand against him. And with that picture forever embedded in Herod's mind, you understand his paranoia some, right? You understand his fear that now he's hearing about Jesus, this other holy and righteous man more, and he's hearing about the miracles he's doing. He's hearing about his great power. He's like, I'm in trouble. <laughs> You know, he feels the weight of this coming back on him. But what does he still not do? <laughs> he still doesn't repent. He still won't repent. So we see that Herod too rejects the kingdom of God. He listened, but he refused to repent. Rather than give up his sin, he gave up John to be murdered. And it's this last scene this last scene of rejection that re really prepares us most for the rejection that's still to come in the Gospel of Mark, right? It's, it's this last violent, bloody rejection of John that prepares the way for the greatest rejection ever of Christ in his kingdom. You can think of the final moments and hours of his life in just all the ways that Jesus was rejected. He was rejected by Judas who betrayed him. He was rejected by the mob who came after him. He was rejected by his disciples who fled and deserted him. He was rejected by the chief priests and the religious leaders who plotted against him. Rejected by the crowd who demanded that a murderer be released instead of him. He was rejected by Herod who sent him back to Pilate dressed like a king. Rejected by Pilate who, despite knowing he was innocent, still condemned him to death. And Pilate asked one final time to the crowd, shall, shall I crucify your king? And the people responded, we have no king but Caesar. The opposite of what we're singing this morning. We have no king but Caesar. So Christ was led outside the city where they finalized their rejection of him by nailing him to the cross and lifting him up to die. The, the, the light rejection we saw in Nazareth was nothing compared to the rejection at Golgotha. But worse still, as he died for our sins and, and took on the penalty that we deserved, he experienced the worst rejection of all, which was the rejection of his heavenly father. As he bore the wrath for our sins, he was totally rejected. But it was this rejection, which is the reason we worship him, right? It was this rejection that made the way for your acceptance 
with the Father. It was his rejection, his condemnation that brought you forgiveness, his suffering that brought you peace. By his wounds, we are healed. His being treated like the filth of the earth that made way for you to be cleansed from every stain of sin, every ounce of shame and guilt forever removed. And all this is yours freely, guaranteed to all who simply repent and believe. And our passage this morning focused mostly on the negative, right? (laughs) We saw mostly negative responses to Jesus. But it's these negative responses that are meant to be a warning so that we don't miss out on the positive, right? It's the warnings that we don't miss out on the amazing. It's an awful thing to reject the kingdom of God, but it's an infinitely glorious thing to enter it. It's a wretched thing to reject Jesus, but it is a sweet and precious thing like nothing else on the planet to receive him and to know him, right? And if you are a Christian this morning, you know that's true, right? You know that's true. And if you are not a Christian, I invite you, Christ himself invites you to find out it is true and to believe in him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we will forever praise you for this rejection that you face on our behalf. We'll forever praise you for the cross by which We find our own pardon and our forgiveness that in our place you were condemned that we might go free and that we might be adopted into the family of God and have hope and life and be reconciled to the Father. And we are just so grateful for these many, many things that are ours through what you have done for us, Christ. We have no other king but you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's take a moment to ponder the words we've heard this morning, to pray and prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper.